Welcome back to the Read the Bible podcast. Now that we've read through the Bible in a year, I just like to pick some of the books that are my favorite and just dive deeper into those books. I'm going to try to do these every week or so. If I miss a week or something, don't panic. I'll probably be back soon. Um, now that our little girl is a few months old, I'm finding myself with a little more time, so hopefully we'll be able to keep up with these weekly. And so I'd like to begin by going through the letter of James. James was Jesus' brother, and in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, um, it says, Then he went home, he being Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And so it's likely that James did not um, believe in Jesus or support Jesus during Jesus' life. John chapter 7, verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed him. James being one of his brothers. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it says uh, everybody's astounded at Jesus. They say, uh, what is the wisdom given to him? Where did this man get these things? Uh, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? So there's James is listed as one of his brothers. And the other verses um, talk about uh, his family doubting him. Um, his family comes to seize him because they think he's out of his mind. It says it's not even his brothers believed him. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, though, everything changes. Jesus rises from the dead. And it says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So it looks like James didn't really uh, believe or support his brother uh, in his claims during his life. Um, but then when you're, you see your brother rise from the dead, uh, then maybe you're a little bit more open to that idea. And it looks like that really changed James' life. Um, James actually becomes at least as well known as Jesus. You know, Paul writes all of these letters. You know, we've got the Gospels, and then after we have the, the letters of the Apostles. And Paul the Apostle writes so much that we tend to think of him as being this, you know, the driving force behind the spread of Christianity. But James actually becomes at least as well-known as Jesus. And even though maybe he didn't write as much, he did as much work um, as Paul for sure. And he becomes incredibly famous. In fact, we have more about James, or arguably more, um, about James that was written after, in the first you know, 100 years or so after Jesus' death. We have more written about James than we do about Jesus. We have lots of things written about James and his adventures spreading the gospel. And so James didn't believe in Jesus. His life is changed by Jesus' resurrection and becomes one of the more uh, well-known fathers of the faith. And so chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. And so James is writing this letter. He introduces himself as the author. He says he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, James, brother of Jesus, Probably because after your brother dies on the cross and rises from the grave, uh, changes how you think of that person. You don't refer to that person maybe so much as your brother anymore, which kind of, you know, denotes equality. Like, uh, you know, James, my brother, of Jesus. But maybe James is referring to himself more as a servant because out of his new respect for Jesus, he refers to him as the Lord. Um, the word servant there is translated, uh, is the Greek word doulos, which is often translated slave, but uh, the ESV and recent translations have gone away from that because of the American connotation with slavery, um, which is not exactly what is meant in the word doulos, so they're trying to get away from that idea. So uh, the word servant probably captures it better in our 2019 language. 
So James described himself as a servant of the Lord God and of Jesus Christ. Um, he refers to him as the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. After the exile, Jews were scattered. And the early church seems to have adopted the term as they've scattered as well. And so the dispersion was the Jewish people that, um, as they lost the promised land, as they were taken off into exile, that would have been back in the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, things like that. Uh, the Jews were scattered, and now the church has scattered as well after the resurrection to go spread that gospel. And so James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, but he's probably, uh, that's just a term used to describe the Christians he's writing to who are now all over and have, have scattered. And so the first thing to note is we take joy, not for suffering for suffering's sake. We don't take joy in misery. We take joy for the fruit of what suffering produces. And obviously, suffering does not automatically produce this fruit because some people reject God in their suffering. They blame God. They say, God, this is your fault. And that comes from a either a heart that doesn't love God. Maybe there's some anger and resentment there. It either comes from a heart that does not love God or it comes from theology that is bad that then affects our heart and our faith and causes us to reject God. But when we know, when we know who God is and we know what good and evil are and we understand God's role in that, suffering produces those things. So one of the things I like to say is if we have a heart that loves the Lord, any suffering we go through will not separate us from Christ. Because if we love Jesus and rightly understand who Jesus is and who good and evil is, that suffering, it, it only causes us to turn more to the Lord. On the flip side, if we don't love the Lord, no amount of, of good times will keep us in, in that faith that we have. At some point, there'll be some sort of obstacle. And even the smallest obstacle will, ca will cause a heart that does not love God to look and say, God, why did you do this? You're responsible. I reject you. Why would you torment me like this? But any heart that loves God and has right guidance and understanding will turn to God in their suffering. And I wouldn't say that the fruit that comes from suffering is some sort of, you know, just automatically or uh, spiritually, mysteriously imparted to us. Certainly the Holy Spirit works in suffering in mysterious ways, of course. But I wouldn't want to attribute the fruit that comes from suffering just simply to a mysterious work of the Spirit. But I would say it's connected with our understanding of God, our understanding of good and evil, and the work that happens in our, in our minds and in our spirits as we process that. As we process that correctly, that's what leads us to the fruit of, of stronger faith and steadfastness and hope and joy in suffering. And so our right understanding is not that God is torturing us, but that God stands against our suffering. In fact, he stands against it so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to take the punishment for the sin that's causing our suffering, for the trial that we're going through. Suffering comes from one of three areas. Either it's from our own sin and the consequences of our own sin. Sometimes we choose to sin and we hurt ourselves and others. Sometimes the suffering we comes fr come from uh, other people's choice to sin. God allows other people that choice to sin as well, and sometimes their choice hurts us. Or we sometimes suffer from the general sin of humanity and its uh, changes to our world. When God creates the world, he creates it totally good, but when human beings sin, suffering enters in. And so you see in Genesis chapter 3, you see God saying that as a part of sin, that uh, terrors and, and things, uh, 
um, where is that verse? Tares and difficulty will come from the land. There it is, uh, verse 18 of chapter 3. Thorns and thistles will be brought forth for, from the land. And I don't think that's just from the plants. That's from all things. The, you know, beautiful breeze that we have, you know, that comes from the high pressure and low pressure fronts, which God created to cool us. Now because of human sin has changed, and now uh, hurricanes and bad weather come and destroy what we've worked for. Um, just like the ground, which used to produce fruit, you know, fruit and food for us, without much difficulty, now thorns and thistles come because of sin and difficulty um, enters. And so there's um, suffering that, that comes from those different areas. And God loves us so much, he sent his son to die on the cross to take the punishment for all that suffering, or I should say all that sin that causes suffering, so that he can judge the world and remove all that suffering from us for an eternity. That's God's heart. He didn't create the world with suffering. In the end, there will be no suffering. In the middle, God didn't get confused and somehow like suffering. And, you know, in this time in between, it's not like God suddenly enjoys suffering and sends it into our lives uh, because of some sort of, you know, um, some sort of desire on his part to see us in pain. God does not bring suffering into our lives. He may allow it for a good purpose, and we can get to that in a minute. But God stands against our suffering so much he died on the cross for that sin to remove that suffering. And when you understand that, that this is how much God loves you and how much God is against your suffering, and you realize if you don't like your suffering, you'll love Jesus and you'll love God because God's going to remove all of that. When you understand that, then you love the Lord. Your suffering brings you to the Lord. The more you suffer, the more I say, I need you, Lord. The more you suffer, you say, I love you, Jesus. I want what you have. God, and we turn to him and we say, save me from this. And we grow stronger in the faith to persist through any suffering which might come to receive that freedom that Jesus will bring. And so when we love the Lord and we have a right understanding, suffering drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when I say that God doesn't bring suffering actively into our lives, uh, I would say that's what I'm getting at there. I think it's biblical. First um, Samuel, there's a lot in the Bible that goes against that though, and so I just like, want to take a moment and address that real quick. Because if you separate verses from their context, then you can come to the exact opposite conclusion, that God actively brings evil into our lives according to his sovereign will. And there's many Christians that believe that. I would say what they're doing is they're separating verses from the text and misreading the text. Uh, for the most, for the most part. So, like First Samuel nineteen nine, it says, "Then a harmful spirit came from the Lo from the Lord. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul." And so, if God doesn't like actively bring suffering in our lives, what's He doing actively bringing a harmful spirit into Saul's life? Uh, like, what's the deal with that? And when, when you read the book of First Samuel, chapter after chapter, Saul has rejected the Lord. Saul has made his choice for ungodliness and for evil, frankly. And so, what God is doing is honoring his choice. And so God isn't actively bringing evil into his life. He is honoring Saul's choice for ungodliness and evil. As Saul rejects the Lord's Spirit, the Lord's Spirit honors that choice and withdraws from him. And as Saul chooses evil, the God honors that choice and sends the evil that Saul has chosen into his life. And so God isn't just coming upon an innocent man and saying, I'm going to do things for a greater purpose here. I'm going to use evil to try to bring about good to some innocent human being. That's not how our God works. Um, and so God, as I mentioned before, God did not create evil in the garden in Genesis 1. 
there will be no evil in Revelations 20 when heaven and the kingdom come down. In the meantime, here God hasn't gotten confused and isn't sending evil into innocent people's lives uh, as a way to bring about some sort of purposes uh, of his. Um, but, however, God does uh, use evil for many things. And part one of, thing, one of the things is discipline. And so because of some sin in our life, uh, some sin in our heart, God may allow um, suffering to come in. So um, chapter 12, verse 6 of Hebrews, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. Um, and so I don't want to limit how God works. You know, I don't know all these different things. Discipline could look, take many forms. It could be directly connected. For example, like you may have uh, fallen into, um, you know, envy and, and jealousy and stealing and, and theft. And you God may allow uh, bring in someone into your life who exposes that and you lose your job or you lose your friends or you're prosecuted as some form of, of discipline. And God, that may be a part of God's plan to restore you. Uh, other times it might be really intangible. I don't really know. You know, God, I don't want to limit how God works. I could imagine, I don't want to speak like I'm confident in this, but I could imagine that, say, you are rejecting God and you're going the wrong way, and you might be on the path to hell. You might be starting down that path. And God allows some sort of, um, or has a purpose for some sort of, you know, medical illness or something in your life. Um, you know, God in his infinite wisdom, when he created the world, might have um, see, foreseen that at this time in your life, not only would you be um, doubting him and going the wrong way, but also maybe running into a, a medical issue. And God has a plan to use that to restore you, to shake you, uh, to remake you realize that you have no control over your life ultimately, and you need to turn to the one who has control. And so I could see God working that way as well, where it's not direct. The sort of discipline of the Lord is not so direct and obvious. Um, but through his merciful and good purposes, he might use suffering to try to discipline discipline us and bring us back to him. Um, and so there's all these different things. Discipline is definitely an option for why God allows suffering uh, to discipline us so that our faith is tested and that we answer that test correctly. That's God's will. We answer that test and our faith grows deeper in that and that could be discipline. And while I don't want to rule out that God could have good purposes and allow some sort of disconnected suffering into our life in order to discipline us or correct our path. I don't want to say that God couldn't do that. I think for the most part, it's unhealthy to try to connect uh, some sort of suffering to some behavior of yours. You know, oh, God is allowing this in my life because I did that. When I was 10, I did this thing, and now God is allowing this suffering in my life years later because of this thing that I did when I was 10 or, you know, something like that. You can drive yourself crazy with stuff like that. I would say for all suffering, look for the good in it. Um, you know, look to grow in your faith. Look to grow as a person in all suffering. Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so while I don't want to say that God, you know, can't have a plan for suffering which seems disconnected uh, to bring about some change in our heart that he wants to bring about, I would say I wouldn't really worry about that so much. I would focus on just what does God want to do and bring out of my suffering? And how can I grow from this? But also, I think it's so healing to know that so much suffering comes from completely, you know, so much suffering comes into our lives for things that we were never responsible for. It comes from living in a fallen world. It comes from the sin of others. And we don't need to sort of be victims who blame ourselves, you know, for 
the evil that's come into our lives. Um, God is so good, though, that he will redeem that. And in this world, we may see that you know powerful good that God has, and we can be confident that he does have good that he's planning to bring out of it. Um, and we can be confident that in the end, God will fully redeem that and bring justice to our situation um, when he returns. I think it's just so healthy and healing, though, to sit there and, and think about this suffering has come into my life for nothing that I've done, and God stands against it. That's what justice is. Justice is God judging things that happen against his will and and punishing them. And so when we think about maybe accidents that have happened in our lives or abuse that we received at the hands of others, you know, I think it's totally fine to sit there and say this is against God's will and God is going to bring justice to this situation and I can't wait for that. I think that's wonderful. Um, I think it's a wonderful message of Christianity. And I think that there's uh, some Christians out there who misunderstand some of the passages in the Bible. They think that all things happen according to God's will. And I would say that's not true. I would say there's some things that definitely happen which are not God's will, and those are called sin. Um, pretty basic, right? And so God, again, God didn't create the world with his suffering. He's going to remove it in the end. He didn't get confused in the middle and somehow desire it and will it. God stands against the suffering that we experience from sin, and he plans to bring justice to that. Um, some people will say, for example, John Piper is one of those people, and I've met Christians like that who will say, God gave me my cancer. Um, God brought this into my life. God brought this suffering into my life. He willed it. And I would say, in one sense, what they're saying is true. And here's how that is true. When God created the world, I would say nothing happens outside of God's knowledge. And when he created this world, he knew every single thing that would happen in this world and yet chose to create it anyway. And so God knew that when he created this world that you might get cancer. Let's say you have cancer right now and that's your, your trial. Um, he might have known, always known, when he created this world that you would get cancer. But it doesn't mean that God willed for you to get cancer. What happened was God created this world with humans having the ability to choose good or evil. And God knew that we would make the wrong choice. We would choose evil. Therefore, there'd be a separation between God and man. The world would be changed. Um, natural evil and accidents will come into this world and illnesses that will come into this world that God never intended to come into this world. But because of human sin, they have, and our choice, they have. And so God, you could say that it's God's will and that before he chose to create, he knew that you'd get cancer because of that human freedom and that he chose to create the world anyway. Therefore, it's his will. And I would say, well, that, okay, yeah, well, that makes sense. But again, you can't, like, remove our suffering from that context and say it's his will, right? You can't say that God just brings suffering into the lives of innocent people. That's just not true. What God does is he brings justice into the lives of innocent people who are suffering. That is really his will. When you look at his overall will, even though God knew that human beings would rebel against him, he knew that he would fix it and he'd send all evil to hell and free us from that so that his children would never suffer for that anymore ever again. And so... I would say that those things which are happening now, which, uh, you know, cancer, illness, things like that, I would say those are against God's will. And he's merely allowing them for the meantime in order to bring more people to know him and love him and bring more people to redemption, um, to belief in him and, and to salvation. And so while in some sense that sort of predestined, um, you know, viewpoint where um, all suffering is according to God's will. I would say, well, technically, you could say that is correct. 
but I would never want to use language which would confuse people to think that somehow God wanted them to suffer. Like when God created this world, he just had it out for you. Um, absolutely not. I would say um, it's more important to use language which highlights uh, how God stands against the suffering that we experience um, and how highlights God's ultimate desire for his children, which is that they be free from that suffering and in a world of paradise and wholeness and healing with him. That is God's ultimate will. I think it's the beautiful, most powerful message of Christianity, which is just the best message that we have here on earth. And I wouldn't want to, you know, while I would would want to recognize um, God's sort of sovereignty in creating this world and, and his, you know, foreknowledge of all the evil that would happen, I want to recognize that. I also want to, you know, use language which makes it clear that his will um, is for our healing and wholeness. Um, and so that was my attempt at a comprehensive uh, theology of suffering there from James verses 2 through 4. So you can really understand that in all of its uh, power. And it's, it is a powerful message. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I know in my life, I have not experienced tons of trials. Other people, their suffering and their faithfulness in that suffering is so inspiring to me because I see how my faith is challenged by the little things that I go through, the little bits of suffering that I have. And I look at other people's suffering and I think, what a witness and a testimony from faithful believers who suffer greatly and yet say, I'm going to continue to put my faith in Jesus because I look forward to the freedom from this suffering that he will bring. I look forward to that salvation. And I think of my own life how this is true. The trials that I've had have bring joy. And while I haven't had major big things, I've had things which have sure felt major and big to me. Um, you know, people out there gossiping or lying about me, that has really been a hard thing um, for me as I've gone through uh, my ministry and my life. Um, you know, I'm out here doing my very best to follow the Lord and follow his will. And, um, you know, when people get upset because they wanted something that I could not give them or, or could not give them and, and still follow God in leadership and they say things that are negative, that's a real trial for me. I hate that. Oh, it hates that. It hurts so bad. Um, but that trial, I can honestly say, has been an important one in my life and one that I need so that I separate my identity from what other people think and say about me and put it more in Christ. You know, there's a problem if this is a real trial for me, if somebody misrepresents what I did or even lies about what I did or said, um, you know, behind my back in order to, you know, turn people against me or something like that. Uh, if that happens, you know, it shouldn't be that big of a deal to me because my identity should be in Christ. I should care what he says about me far more than other sinful people. Um, and so the trials in my life, they have been so needed. Um, I think of all the little trials of, you know, my kids having pneumonia and holding them as they're miserable at night. I've shared that many times in sermons and things like that. That is a trial which is absolutely essential for me. I need to strengthen my faith so that I'm able to face the big trials, right? At, one, at some point, my life will be ending. My wife's life, those I love, my children's lives, they will be ending. And I will have to deal with that. And in those times of trial, I don't want to just be blindsided and just abandon the faith because it's such a great trial for me and my faith is far too weak to withstand it. I need these little trials so that I can separate my faith from my health, separate my faith from my blessings, so that my faith is not dependent upon my blessings, but my faith is dependent upon God's promise and who he is and his character. 
My faith needs to be in his promise of salvation and in his character of being good so that I trust him throughout all those trials. And so I count it joy even in those you know, times of my life where they feel like big issues. You know, um, I count it joy that God has brought those into my life because my faith is much stronger because of it. And now I'm uh, on that road to perfection and completeness like James says. I'm on that road to heaven in a much more powerful way uh, because of those trials. I am much more complete um, because I can withstand future trials, and I'm on that road to completeness as well. And then we'll just do one more section for this week, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so the Greek word there for double-minded is dipsychos, uh, which sounds a lot like a English word, right? Dipsychos, two psyches. Your psyche is split because of your doubt. Doubt creates divided loyalty. Um, so I don't want to get into the prosperity, name it and claim it, believe it and receive it type of thing. Um, you know, the Bible says, 1 John 5, 14 says, this is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Uh, so, you know, there's some prayers which, you know, will just not be answered. And, um, but, uh, you know, it takes faith. It does take faith Faith like a mustard seed, but it does take faith. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Uh, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Of course, this, that mountain moving, Matthew 17, 20, that mountain moving was according to God's will. God willed for that mountain to move. The mountain was the temple, and what Jesus was saying was, we're going to move this temple into the sea, and we're going to change the way God is worshipped. And so that prayer was according to his will. It's not like what the Bible teaches is not that we just believe enough and then we can have anything we want. But what it's saying is whatever is according to God's will, if you have the faith of the mustard seed and pray that prayer, well, that will be answered. Um, and so there's times where, you know, God wills. You know, the disciples, for example, there's times where God willed them to have miracles. They went out and did all these miracles and healed all these people um, to glorify the Lord and advance his gospel. Other times it was God's will for them to die and suffer and be martyred for their faith. And so, again, this isn't that sort of name it and claim it type of things. Um, but for us to receive those good things that God has for us, we need not to doubt. That's certain. It doesn't take a ton of faith. You know, but it does take faith, faith like a mustard seed. I wouldn't really worry so much about the strength of your faith as the strength of the one your faith is in. I wouldn't sit there and, and you know, feel like, oh, I just need to work harder at believing more and then I'll have more blessings from the Lord. That's not exactly um, what I'd encourage people or pastor people to view in their prayer life. I would um, encourage people to have faith that their faith is enough. You know, have faith that your faith is enough, that you have that mustard seed, and have faith uh, in the one who has infinite strength and trust that if it's according to his will, you'll receive those promises. Um, and don't doubt. Don't sit there and doubt. Um, don't be double-minded. The Lord uh, and his promises, is, he is trustworthy, he is faithful, and as we ask, we can have confidence 
that if it is according to his will, we will receive that. We can have that sort of confidence. At the beginning of verse 5 there, there's that one little sentence, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. Let's remember that that is the context of this passage. It's about asking for wisdom. God gives generously. You know, this isn't about asking for more money. Um, This isn't asking, I'd love to be 5'10 or 6 feet instead of 5'6". That's not what this passage is about. It's about asking God for wisdom. I have a prayer reminder. I have the Echo Prayer app on my phone and my watch. I have a prayer reminder every day that comes up and says, remember to pray for wisdom and remember to pray for God's love. I figure if I could get those two down, I'd be set, right? If I can think like God and I can feel like God, what else is there? You know, if I could feel as God feels and if I could think as God thinks, I I would have no problems, really. Um, So I always pray for wisdom every day. God, give me that wisdom. Give me that love for other people. And uh, I can have faith that God will give that generously to me. Um, Yeah, and so as you're going through your prayer life, remember, um, your faith of a mustard seed, that will be enough. And I wouldn't um, sit there and uh, feel like you're not receiving God's promises because you don't believe enough. But I'd be asking yourself, if I'm praying, and I'm praying to the God of all strength and he is allowing this, what is his purpose? Um, instead of missing those purposes and instead of praying for no suffering, it's interesting that right before this passage, he talks about the suffering, how we should count that as joy. If we are praying to the God of all strength for relief from our suffering, and he's not granting us with that yet, um, then we should think, you know, if I can pray anything according to his will and receive it, then what is his will for me in this suffering? What does he want to do in my heart, in my life, um, that I can glorify God by responding to that and grasping hold of that good thing that God has for me in this suffering? <laughs>